With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Fenway Rundown, the premier podcast for all things Boston Red Sox. You know, people harp on the last place thing, but essentially what's important is the record. If the Red Sox want people to start thinking the ownership cares, then maybe they should talk. This is the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live. Here are your hosts, Chris Cotillo and Sean McAdam. It's Tuesday, which means you get an on-location Fenway Rundown. I'm Chris Cotillo in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital the Red Sox will be playing the Nationals for three games to start the road trip. Sean McAdam is back home, not on this trip with me. I think traveling for six days at the end of July with me was enough for good, would you say? More than enough. Yeah, so uh, I'm doing this one solo. I'll be in New York over the weekend as well. And then Chris Smith will be going down to Houston because Houston in August. Can you beat it? No. no but Sean and I will have uh, kind of a, a recap of the homestand that we just saw and a preview of this long road trip on this episode and then be back in action with another on Thursday. So Sean, uh, we were both there for most of the homestand of the seeing the Blue Jays, which we talked about last week on Thursday and, and most of the Royal series we had covered, but we did not have a chance to cover really the returns of, um, or at least the weekends that Chris Sale, Trevor Story and Gara Whitlock had. Tanner Houck will be the, the last member of that important quartet to come back uh, probably next week in Houston. But Sale is back, Story is back, Whitlock is back, and they're all making contributions. We saw Sale very dominant on Friday night in his first outing. Story after a slow start, which you said on this very show you were not concerned about at all. Looking really good, particularly on Sunday. And Garrett Whitlock looking like him old, his old self out of the bullpen. So uh, which of the three of those guys to you was the most impressive um, in, in getting the Red Sox a, a pretty strong end to that homestand well even though it's one game i think the guy that you walk away being most impressed with and potentially the guy that has the ability to impact the final 40 or so games here the most is chris sale um which is sort of counterintuitive because um he's only going to pitch one every five games and that's of course assuming that chris sale does not fall victim to another injury or physical setback we know that it's dangerous to ascribe too much confidence or faith in Chris Sale at this point, because who knows when he's going to break down again. Uh, that has been a constant issue since the start of the contract extension signed in uh, March of 2019. But you had to come away impressed with what you saw Friday night. Yeah, it's Detroit. The Tigers are not very good. But he came out firing, retiring the first 14 hitters he faced gave up a solo home run, hit a batter, and that was that. But 
uh, a fastball at 95, 96, good life on the slider, the changeup coming along. If, if Sale is pitching the way he did in May uh, before he got hurt the first time, then the Red Sox have uh, an incredible weapon for the stretch run in the final quarter of the season. Uh, Trevor Story is also a huge contributor, or potentially so, and we saw that over the weekend as his bat started to come alive. He got his timing down a little bit more at the plate. And we're reminded, as Alex Cora often tries to tell us, uh, what a, a you know an all-around athlete story is with his base running, the ability to be at least uh, an average to a little bit above average shortstop, a repaired throwing arm that gives him additional uh, zip on the ball now in those throws from the hole, and his offensive ceiling, which is fairly high when he gets going. So um, both those guys could have huge impacts going forward. Yeah, and I think the, the what we've learned this year about Sale is the injury issues clearly aren't behind him. That's a freak accident type thing. You don't really see that injury in pitchers. But the ceiling is still high, you know, we've seen that throughout the year before he got hurt this outing here right off the injured list. Um, you know, if, I think the the ERA is inflated by two or three bad ones to start the year. But the ceiling is still very high with this guy. And there's there's very few guys you'd rather have on the mound at full strength. It is always that question of when he's going to break down again. I also think Garrett Whitlock's return. You covered that uh, game at, at the crack of dawn at noon on Sunday. Garrett Whitlock coming back and, and being that dangerous, you know, long relief weapon for the Red Sox, you know, suddenly that bullpen is pretty nasty. You have Whitlock, Schreiber, Winkowski, Martin, Jansen, Bernardino, and Murphy probably from the left side. I mean, that's a very, very good bullpen mix. And all of those guys, I believe, are under control for at least next year. So that's a strength that, you know, looks like a strength for not just the last six weeks here, but also you know, 2024. The thing with Whitlock um, is – are they going to try this rotation experiment again in the spring? I wrote about this a bit on Saturday. They've given this guy the chance and through no fault of his own, he's gotten hurt repeatedly, um, you know, kind of in both roles, but especially since he started with the rotation thing, it has not worked out now in two straight years. They've had to put him back in the bullpen at the end of both of these years to you. Do you think that this is, that's it on the um, Whitlock as a starter? Or are they going to keep trying it and, and keep trying it until, um, they finally make a decision. I, I would not eliminate it um, permanently. I, I think it's still in the back of their mind to maximize and and to to uh, to address this. I, I think it's what they should do because, despite the fact that he has performed historically far better out of the bullpen than he has mm -hmm. as a member of the rotation, to me, when you have a young pitcher with upside, you want to eliminate the possibility that he can contribute as a starter before you consign him permanently to the bullpen. And, uh, you know, they've got him under control for uh, another four or five seasons with that deal that they had uh, from 22 to lock him up. I, I think they want to maximize his value. And despite, you know, you can look at a relative small sample size and say that in whatever it is, 15 or 18 career starts, it hasn't clicked for him. It's always more valuable to have a guy that can give you 175 innings and go every five days than a guy who can give you 75 innings over the course of the season. That is self-evident. And uh, while I think some of that decision going forward on Whitlock is going to be dependent on what else they do in the winter, and you and I have talked about the fact that they're probably going to go after two, if not three, starting pitchers this winter, a lot of it may depend on 
who else is surrounding him? You know, looking forward, you have Bayo as a member of that rotation in 24. You have, fingers crossed, Chris Sale as a member of that rotation. You have some other options like Hauk, like, uh, uh, like Whitlock, like Crawford, but you don't know exactly what's going to happen in the offseason. So I think they're going to keep their options open. It's not anything they have to make a call on in November and December. He can prepare throughout the winter to come back to spring training as a starter again. If they find that they go out and get a couple of pretty good starting pitchers, either through free agency or trade, then he goes back to the bullpen. If not, I think he could still be in competition next spring. I would not uh, flush that uh, that hope that Garrett Whitlock can get can be a good major league starting pitcher just yet. In a perfect world, sure. I just think that at a certain point, you have to look at it and see you know, the results have been what they've been from the bullpen. And this isn't a guy that's going out and giving you an inning at a time. This is a two-inning, three-inning type guy who can really you know, shut down uh, a lineup. And we've seen when he's at its best, it's you know, 10 pitch, one, two, three innings. I mean, like he, he's like extremely efficient, extremely overpowering and, and hitters are, are very fooled late in the game, especially, you know, uh, if he's giving a, a much different look to what they saw earlier, you talk about the innings thing. And I understand the math of that and the 170 versus 70 and all that with Gary Whitlock. And I used this argument last year and the Red Sox eventually, um, they must've read me writing it 19 times and, and fell, fell into it. But I also kind of like the idea of him contributing in as many games as possible instead of, you know, as many innings. There's something to that to me. That's true. But remember, if you're going to use him as that multi-inning weapon, he's not going to be a guy that pitches four times a week. He's going to be a guy that pitches two or three times a week. Uh, the, the, The formula being for every inning you pitch, you get a day off. So if he's giving you two innings as he did the other day, then he's off for two days and then comes back and might give you three. And then he's off for another three. And there's your week of workload for Garrett Whitlock. So, and and I would also point out that when that question was posed to Alex Cora, when Whitlock went down the last time, this most recent time with the elbow issue, Cora pushed back on the, well, maybe he just isn't built to hold up to a starting pitcher's workload uh, by by saying that, well, you know, there's nothing easy about, uh, you know, being available every other day out of the bullpen, and that takes a strain on an arm, and that can have some physical damage over time. So uh, it seems like internally they haven't quite given up on that. The, the, this is the way to go for the rest of the year. There's only six weeks. They wanted him back quickly to be a contributor. So not unlike Chris Sale coming back, before he ordinarily might, building up to maybe five or six innings and 90 pitches. The idea was bring Whitlock back now, plug him into the bullpen, and he's available right out of the chute to give you multiple innings. But he's not, of course, ready to go five or six as he would for a starter's role. This is something we'll definitely discuss as the offseason. Uh, as we move into the offseason, the offseason goes on. But I look at that bullpen and I see trade chips. You know, where you, you have Chris Martin and Jansen under control for another year, Schreiber and Winkowski potentially Whitlock, Bernardino, Murphy, all these controllable pieces. Like you could probably deal one of those and, and help your roster elsewhere. Remains to be seen if they will, or, you know, I don't think Himes did obviously the type to deal those are controllable pieces, but you might have kind of a surplus there. This uh, homestand, which we've covered, I guess, half of on the last pod, and, and we'll, we're covering the other half now. Five and five overall. They get swept by the Blue Jays. They take three or four from the Royals and then two of three from the Detroit Tigers over the weekend. I think you look at the 
take the Blue Jays series aside, and they did what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to win series against good t- against bad teams. Excuse me. They have another one um, here in Washington that they'll have an opportunity to do three or four against Kansas City. It just feels like to me, and I don't know if you also interpret it this way. You know, despite winning, I guess five of the last seven, it feels like there was opportunity squandered, losing a Bayo game on Saturday and not sweeping the Royals. Like I know it's tough to sweep a team over four games, but to me, five and two is, <laughs> and I know this is obvious, but it does not feel as good as it should for them as six and one or seven and zero would have. And I know they're only three back. I know they're in it, and I know they they have their roster at full strength. But it just feels like despite the five and two, a little bit of a missed opportunity in the last five days or so. I, I don't see it that way. I, I think where the homestand really uh, took a wrong turn was getting blown out three straight by Toronto. And then they yeah. did everything they could to salvage the last two series. I, I agree with your first point that it is hard to sweep a major league team, even if the Kansas city Royals barely qualify as such. But taking three out of four there, don't two don't out of three don't out of say they're a little league team. Whatever you do, we've been down this road, uh, and it's not I a good heard one. That went wrong for somebody, it did. Um, but to to salvage the rest of the homestand, that was something they had to do. Uh, if you're looking at five and five as not being good enough, then that's correct. But the problem came at the front end, not the back end, where uh, they they had a reeling Blue Jays team. Remember, as Dan Schulman, one of our guests a couple of weeks ago, said. Uh, as that series was getting underway, that the Blue Jays were not playing well. They really had their offense shut down by Baltimore in that previous series at home. And the expectation was that this could really be an opportunity for the Red Sox to uh, wipe out that three-game deficit that they were looking at at the start of that series. Instead, it grew, or maybe it was two games, I guess, at that point. Um, But the fact that that they lost and lost in embarrassing fashion uh, that's one they're going to look back on and and rue, I think, if it comes down to the final week here where they really had some opportunity to make up ground against the Blue Jays, continue their dominance of them, having been 7-0 in the first couple of series, and instead uh, just, you know, just completely get embarrassed by the Blue Jays. I have no problem with going 5-2 and two against really bad teams. Uh, again, 6-1 and one would have looked a lot better. And, and I think we said... Heading into this um, stretch after the Blue Jays series, I think on last Tuesday's episode, 10 games against bad teams, four against Kansas City, three against Detroit, three here in Washington. You said seven was the magic number, and two out of three here in D.C. gets that job done. We'll kind of turn the attention to this road trip, which is a long one, I I think tied for or um, is singularly the longest one of the season. Okay. Uh, three in D.C., three in New York over the weekend, and four in Houston, no off days. The story here is the pitchers they're going to face. So you look at the Nationals are not good. The Yankees are reeling. Houston, obviously, is a good team. And, you know, the Red Sox have a competitive starter out there every day, starting with Pavetta getting a start today, and then Paxton Sale, and then uh, Bayo and Crawford starting the weekend. Who they're going to face over this time should be a little bit scary to them. Tonight, it starts with Josiah Gray guy that not a lot of people know about, a good national starter, came over in the Scherzer trade, who was an all-star this year. Um, Mackenzie Gore, a talented lefty tomorrow. And then over the weekend in New York, they're projected to face Garrett Cole on Saturday and Clark Schmidt, who's quietly been pretty good for them on Sunday. And then you get to Houston, and it's Fr- Framber Valdez, Christian Javier, and Justin Verlander to start. Uh, that does not seem 
to be a very promising or friendly uh, group of starters. There are some, you know, easier guys in there. Patrick Corbin, one of the worst free agent signings. I know he's been a little bit better this year in the finale in Washington and, you know, some other pieces here and there. But to me, um, you know, be uh, beware of on a long road trip going up against a lot of horses, especially once they get to Houston. Yeah, I mean, Houston's obviously the most challenging aspect there. Right. To me, uh, they're, they're, they're playing two bad teams out of the shoot here. And yes, they're on the road. But to me, they should win those first two series. They should get two out of three against Washington at minimum and then uh, and go in with the expectation that they can get two out of three from the Yankees, who are, as you said, properly reeling. And uh, they're a game over 500. They're in last place. They got smoked by Atlanta on Monday night. They have the Braves, the rest of the series. They're going to be limping into that series at home against the Yankees, uh, against the Red Sox. And it could be an ugly turn for the home team in the Bronx this weekend. Um, so if you're looking at what's an acceptable record here on this 10 game swing, which is difficult because as you point out, no off days, 10 games in a row after t- yesterday's off day, uh, two out of three, two out of three. And then I think the best you can probably hope for in Houston is a split of the four that brings you home at uh, six and four. Uh, I, I think that while that doesn't wow anybody, given a 10 game trip and the fact that you're playing arguably the second best team in the American league at this point in Houston, that they would probably uh, take that and run with it, come home and try to fatten up uh, when they return. But this is a tough trip. Um, Not necessarily because of the opponents in the first two series, but the length and the duration and the no off days makes it a challenge if they can win the first two series and split with Houston, that's probably not a bad swing. It's also hot as hell here, and it always is in the summer, and there's no roof and there's no dome. And so um, that's a tough way to start it when it's muggy. I know that you are um, among the people who hate humidity the, the most in the world. So um, the fact that I have this trip probably works to your favor. We've talked a lot about different cities we've traveled to over uh, the time on the job. You uh, for much longer than me, as I like to point out. Um, this one's one of my favorites. Uh, senior year, before senior year of college, I spent six weeks in D.C. when I was working for SB Nation and DuPont Circle, and it was awesome. Uh, great happy hour scene, great rooftop bars, just kind of love the whole atmosphere of the whole thing. There's a taco stand I will be hitting, Surfside and DuPont Circle. Don't forget it right after we finish rolling here on Tuesday afternoon. Um, D.C., also one of your favorites, Sean McAdam, right? Not exactly, Chris. Um, I, I have been there a surprisingly few number of times. <clears throat> uh, of course, the, the Nationals being a National League team, uh, interleague play uh, meant that you only went there every five or six years. So I've been there a couple of times. Uh, in fact, I've only been to Nationals Park for a preseason game uh, where the Red Sox stopped and played there uh, against the Nats maybe, uh, well, it was the Bobby Valentine year, 2012, So that was probably the last time I was there. The time before that was memorable and not in a good way. The Red Sox were playing another barnstorming series at the end of spring training prior to the start of the year. And they stopped and played uh, a game at the old RFK Stadium where the Redskins used to play uh, against the Baltimore Orioles. The feeling being on on the part of a local promoter that um, that there would be some baseball fans coming out to the district who didn't want to make the drive up to see the Orioles. Uh, so there was a couple of games at RFK. 
I was coming home from having dinner with some other reporters the night before the game, walking through Georgetown, walking down the street. Um, I had uh, just broken a $100 bill that I had had in helping to pay for dinner and had uh, that folded money in my front pocket. And maybe you can see where this is going. As I was walking through the streets of Georgetown, uh, a gentleman went past me. He was holding a broadsheet newspaper in front of him. And just as he passed me, um, I had been dressed up. We had gone to a nice steakhouse. Uh, I had a tie on and a sport coat. Um, he unfolded the newspaper and showed me a rather large knife uh, with which he threatened me. And I quickly went into my front pocket and gave him the 40 or so dollars that I had left out of the hundred that I had broken uh, at dinner. I had my wallet in my back pocket. Uh, I gave him the crumbled up money in my front pocket and said, here, this is all I have. As he was taking it, someone saw all of this unfold in a parked car about 20 feet away and thankfully began leaning on their horn uh, to scare him off. And that's indeed what happened. He ran away. And uh, I think my knees were knocking for uh, about another 20 minutes or so before I was able to recover. I was lucky that all it cost me was 40 or so dollars, uh, but it remains a, 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 a very dark memory of one of my few trips to Washington. So um, have a good time and look over your shoulder when you're walking home tonight. Yeah. Glad you are here to tell the tale and um, give us that wonderful ad for Washington, D.C.'s Bureau of Tourism that is now sponsored. I'm not, the... saying, I'm not saying it's an unsafe city. It was unsafe. This was, I should point out, uh, you know, about 30 years ago. Um, and I'm not saying it's a bad place to visit. It's just that uh, through my own lens, it was a harrowing visit at least once. Well, I will uh, hopefully have a better day today. We'll wrap with this. Sean on the spot, which ironically could have been the <laughs> name of the last segment too. Um, but I like to give you a player or a person from the past that you've covered and known. Um, usually one that I don't know personally because, you know, I uh, enjoy hearing the stories. With the Red Sox heading to New York and Houston, we'll uh, pull up your uh, favorite, if you can mark it down to one, Roger Clemens' story of covering him and knowing him throughout the years. Yeah, well, not necessarily favorite, but one of the ones that pops into my head almost immediately is the occasion of Roger's 20, uh, second 20 strikeout performance. Of course, the first... Uh, was back in the mid-80s against the Seattle Mariners at Fenway, and then in one of his final years with the Red Sox, can't remember if it was 95 or 96, um, or maybe, no, it was early, may have been earlier than that, one of his final years where he struck out 20 in Detroit at the old Tiger Stadium. And um, we, I remember speaking, we, we spoke to him the next day, kind of a follow-up after it happened, and he was recounting how the Red Sox used to stay out in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, not downtown Detroit. Um, and uh, that was a good, you know, 15, 12 to 15 miles away, maybe. And Clemens told us that he had uh, run to a, a good chunk of the way from Dearborn uh, to uh, Tiger Stadium that day and uh, talked about 
being, uh, you know, passing by, as he termed it, other businessmen, which I thought was interesting that he was referring to himself sort of as a businessman. And I guess in the broader picture, that's accurate, given the amount of money that Roger made for himself and good for him. Uh, and he was sort of uh, in a very lighthearted mood the next day, regaling us with what had happened over the last 48 hours. And in that group interviewing him was Larry Whiteside, uh, the late, great Larry Whiteside from the Boston Globe, who famously in the first 20 strikeout game against the Mariners uh, uh, back in 86, I think it was, at Fenway, uh, Larry actually had the night off, but showed up at Fenway early and watched the first couple of innings before leaving Fenway to go cross town to a Celtics Milwaukee Bucks playoff game, which he was also using as a busman's holiday. He wasn't working it either, but had credentials to go to both. And he left in the second inning to go to the Celtics game and forever took a lot of grief for that because he walked away from a historic performance. Uh, nobody uh, uh, up until that point had ever struck out 20. Later, Kerry Wood did it, and Clemens himself did it a second time. Uh, but it was baseball history in the making. So Whiteside always took a lot of grief for leaving in the second or third inning. He defended himself by saying that Clemens only had eight strikeouts after three innings or so. And so how was he to know that it was going to end up in, at 20, which was pretty funny. But as we were... Uh, going over the the events of the second 20 strikeout game, uh, Roger took time, noticed Larry Whiteside being among those questioning him and said, Larry, I'm glad you stayed for the whole game last night. And that was uh, that was kind of a funny way to wrap that up. But yeah, Roger was always um, an interesting guy to be around, both for his greatness on the field and his uh, his comments later, many of which included malaprops for the ages. Yep, and uh, he should be in Houston uh, next week, as he always is when the Red Sox are in town. Um, that'll be Christmas problem. For now, that's Sean McAdam. I'm Chris Cotillo on the Fenway Rundown. We'll be back Thursday as the Red Sox continue this long trip in D.C. This has been the Fenway Rundown, brought to you by Mass Live.